Our reading this afternoon is from Hebrews, chapter 3, verse 7, through chapter 4, verse 16. This is what Holy Scripture says. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin." For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest." Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterwards in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of a day, another day later on. So then, There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy 
and find grace to help in time of need. May God bless the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. Well, before I introduce our, our preacher for today, um, this summer, for the month of August, we will be having a series of guest speakers coming to bless us with God's word. Um, this afternoon, we have Kaylee, who I'm going to introduce in a moment. And in the following weeks, we will have, uh, we'll have the pastors of the RUF fellowships at uh, the UCLA campus, well, USC campus, the Santa Barbara campus, and the UCLA campus. Um, they run a college ministry that is part of our denomination called Reform University Fellowship. And um, they'll be coming to, and we support them as well as a church. So when they do come, please welcome them, encourage them. Um, they're doing great work out on some of the campuses that we hold dear. And with that, Kaylee, I'm going to call Kaylee up in a moment. For those of you who are newer to King's Church, Kaylee was our youth director for, for several years, and he served faithfully and well. Um, I consider him a friend. He is now, he's now um, just finished his first year of the MDiv program at Westminster, California, and we're very glad to have him join us. So I believe Sabrina and the kids are here as well. So let's welcome them. Hi, everyone. It's, it's good to be back with you all. Uh, yeah, as David said, we've been down in Escondido, California, for about a year now, a little over a year, and it's been a tremendous year. Uh, seminary has been everything that I've ever hoped and dreamed, and it's, it's been a wonderful year of, of learning, and we have been blessed. Uh, we actually we moved on campus onto the new housing, uh, student housing uh, facility, and we've been surrounded by uh, fellow students and other families that are also in this current season of life, uh, and it's been it's been nothing but a blessing. We've made tremendous friendships and relationships in such a short period of time. Uh, with that being said, though, every time we do get off the freeway and exit Long Beach, uh, and exit to Long Beach, uh, Spring and I both say this feels like home, uh, and so we we truly miss you guys and, and seeing all these familiar faces. And I hope to see uh, more after the after the service, but. Uh, yeah, it's, it's good to be back with you guys. Um, so, all right. So, thank you, David, for reading. Again, uh, we're in Hebrews 3, 7, 4 through 16, and, and I'd encourage you, if you have your Bible, to, to turn there. We're going to be flipping through uh, quite a few passages, and I know, understand it's a big section. Uh, so, I'm going to start by asking a question, and it's a excuse me, hypothetical question, not hypothetical, rhetorical question, so don't feel like you need to answer, just more so meant to, to get us thinking, but why do we work? Why do we work? Right, phrase, or phrase it another way, to what end do we labor? Okay, when you, when you wake up in the morning, you prepare yourself for the day, right, you wash your face, you take a shower, right, maybe you put on a, a finely pressed suit, maybe you, you strap on some work boots, and you venture out the door and you, and you go to spend the better portion of your day at a job that, that hopefully you love, but, but quite possibly you hate. Why, why do you do that? Or maybe, maybe for some of us, we don't have to leave the house. Maybe, maybe we stay at home, right? Maybe, maybe we're a stay-at-home parent. And, and that does not uh, mean just because you stay at home that, that your labors are, <clears throat> excuse me, any less significant 
Perhaps even your labors are even more intense because five o'clock rolls around and you can't clock out, right? Maybe, maybe your coworker comes home and joins you, but, but you're still very much working, especially if you're a mother of young children, right? You're working into the wee hours of the night. And so, again, I ask the question, to what end do we labor? To what end do we work? Why do we do it? Now, some, some of us, uh, some answers might immediately come to mind, right? We work for money, right? We work for the paycheck. We work to put food on the table. We work to, to simply sustain the way of life. Or we also work to attain to a better position in life, right? We, we work to eventually retire. Or simply, and this is probably the, the normal experience of the of the week, but in the proverbial words of lover boy, right, everybody's working for the weekend, right? Everybody just wants to make it to Friday. You've got a bad case of the Mondays, but we say, thank God it's Friday. And so, and so, so why do we work? The answer is, is simple. We, we work to rest. We work to rest, to eventually attain something that we did not yet have in our possession. And this, of course, does not mean that work is simply a necessary evil that keeps us away from rest, but rather I would argue that, that it's actually work that sweetens the rest. Work is actually what orients us towards rest. Work is what prepares our palates to have a taste for it. It, it, it prepares our stomachs and our appetites so that when we eventually do rest, it tastes good. Rest, true rest, is really a reward. Right? After, after a long, hard day of working outside, right? maybe you've mowed the lawn, maybe you've worked in the, in the garage, at the end of the day, a beer tastes better. Right? Maybe, maybe you've had a long day at the office, and, or maybe you've, you've had a long day with the kids, and you finally get the kids in bed, and finally they're asleep. You open a bottle of wine. Wine tastes sweeter. Company and fellowship, right? parties and ceremonies, each of these things are made all the more better when they carry this sense of accomplishment, this sense that you have fulfilled your duty and that you may now enter into a state of rest, right? You have worked and you have labored so that you may now rest and enjoy the fruits of your labor. See, without, without the work, rest ceases to be rest. If work does not begin when we come to rest, uh, we have different words for that. Without work, rest is just idleness. Right? Rest is laziness. Rest is, is gluttony. And so, and so work is not a necessary evil, but rather work prepares us and orients us towards rest. And so to ask another question, why do we need rest? What is it within us that makes us yearn for rest? Why aren't, don't we just, can't we just simply stay in this perpetual motion of work and labor, work and labor? I think many of us do, but we can't do that forever. There's something within us that propels us for rest. Well, I would, I would argue that that is because we were created to rest. 
as men and women who were made in the Imago Dei, right? We were created in the image of God. I would argue that we were actually, ultimately, created for Sabbath rest. When we think about what it means to, to be made in the image of God, right? Let's, let's take this, this concept for a second. Most often, two, two things come to mind. Most often, we can think about to be made in God's image is to share and to mirror God's attributes. And, th- and this is, of course, true. Right? We are loving beings, we're, we're relational beings, we're, we're thinking and rational, intellectual beings. And so, yes, we, we absolutely do share in God's attributes. Or another way we can think about this is we think about this in terms of our labors. Right? For the first six days of creation, God worked and God created. And so we are working and creating beings And we even see this in God's mandate to Adam. He says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over it. And then the garden, he commands him to work it and keep it. And so, so yes, we see in the Imago Dei that we do share in God's attributes and and we do share in God's kingly commission to rule over the earth. But we also see that we are made in God's image when we rest, right? We also see that we are made in the image of God and that we are also to share in God's destiny. To be made in the image of God is to also share in God's destiny. So why do I say that? Right, when I, and when I say destiny, I don't want anyone to think I, I mean this mystical sort of presence or, or something that's, that's mystically directing you, and, th- and that applies to God. No, what I mean by destiny and being a share of God's destiny is that, that we share in that end, right? We share in that, that telos. In Genesis 2.1, it says this. It says, because on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God worked for six days and then rested on the seventh. And as the creator God moves from work to rest, so does created man. As creatures made in God's image, for us to glorify God is to mirror our maker and follow suit. To be made in the image of God is to share in God's attributes. It is to share in God's work, but it is also ultimately to share in God's destiny and to share in God's rest. But let's, let's be clear, this rest that, that we're speaking to and, and this rest that the author of Hebrews is speaking to is not simply this rest that we partake of in ev- on every weekend, right? It's not today. What the author of Hebrews is referring to is a special kind of rest. That is an eternal, ultimate rest of God, right? The true Sabbath rest of God. Whereas every day in the creation narrative, and we're not going to look too deeply at this, but, it, but every day in the creation narrative, we see this pattern in which there is evening and there is morning over the first six days of creation. And it is startling to find that that same pattern is abandoned on the seventh. We do not see that said of the seventh day. God worked and God accomplished. 
right? God, God labored and God created, and as though putting tests before himself, God passed each test, judging his work as good. And he beheld his work and he said, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then he sat down as the victorious king sits over his creation, having passed his tests, saying, it is very good. And had Adam not sinned, Adam would have shared in this destiny. Often we can think that if Adam would not have fallen, life would have simply gone on, right? In this perpetual state uh, that Adam would have remained uh, sort of perpetually filling this mandate. And we, and we think that because it was perfect. And indeed, creation was perfect. But it was not yet ultimate. Instead, had Adam not fallen, he would have attained the seventh day. That, that is the Sabbath rest of God, which has no end. Adam would have ceased from his works just like his creator, God. And he would have been approved to enter into this eternal Sabbath had he not fallen. He would have attained to the seventh day, both for him and his wife and all of mankind after him. Okay, and this is the Sabbath rest that's being spoken of in Hebrews. But, but as we know, Adam failed. Adam did not pass the test. He did not keep to the perfect and personal obedience that his God had called him to, but Adam disobeyed. Right? And in so doing, he did not just lose Eden. He lost eternal Sabbath rest. And again, I'm not talking about the weekend. Right? I'm not talking about, about the sign of today. Today is a sign of rest, but it is not the rest. And so now, it says that in pain you shall bring forth children. In pain you shall bring forth food. By the sweat of your face you shall eat until you die. The life of Adam and all of mankind is very much a cursed life. You will never master your work. You will never master your work, but rather now your work will master you. Despite all of your best efforts, all of those hours at the office, all of those hours in front of a computer screen, all, right, all those hours at home, that time spent uh, trying to figure out how to be a better mom, how to be a better dad, how to be a better husband, how to be a better wife. None of it will ever be mastered. And so much of this life is burdensome, and it's broken, and it's hard. While we were supposed to master the earth, the earth will now master us. While we were supposed to master our work, our work will now break us down until we are no more. And yet we long for rest. Because we were created for rest. We were not only created to work. We long for rest because we've never really had it at all. Human history has always been a strenuous account of the sixth day. 
ever reaching and never attaining the seventh. Never attaining to the eternal rest of God. That is until Christ. Until Jesus Christ as the second Adam accomplished what he could not and obeyed God perfectly in our stead. Right? Or to, to borrow the language of the, of the Westminster Confession, uh, which is the confession of this church, Christ obeyed God in perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience. Right? He fulfilled the task that man could not accomplish. And in so doing, he earned heaven in our stead. Christ earned ultimate Sabbath rest on our behalf. So that while the pains of this life are very much real, and while the work of this life is very much hard, there still remains a Sabbath rest to be had for the people of God. Because of Christ, there still remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And it is the same Sabbath rest that's promised to you today. Only now, because of Christ, there is no more work to be done. But it is only to believe in that work that has been done for you. Because of Christ, there is no more work to be done, but it is only to believe in that work done for you. Or rather, to believe in the one who worked for you. Now, now the author of Hebrews, as we jump, jump in the, back into the text, the author of Hebrews is writing to the people in a very real danger. That is the people who are at risk of forfeiting rest. The letter to the Hebrews is written to a group of ethnically Jewish Christians who are coming out of Ju Judaism, and yet they're very much tempted to go back to their roots, go back to the religion that was never intended to provide them with all that Christ provided for them. Judaism was never intended to provide them with all of the realities that Christ provided for them. Rather, it was only intended to point them and prepare them for Christ. These people are tempted to forsake the real Christ and settle for his shadow. And the author of Hebrews, he's, he's drawing this out. And he, and he brings up Psalm 95, which in, in that time uh, had been customarily sung uh, every Sabbath day. And, and so the people whom he's writing to, they would have been very familiar uh, with it. And, and Psalm 95, it's very interesting. It starts off with its first six verses, excuse me, first seven verses, uh, in which it's, a, it's this wonderful call to worship. Right? It's this wonderful call into the presence of God, very much like we began service this, this afternoon. And it starts off with this call to come and to worship God. But then it's interesting because the psalm ends with this extremely sober warning. And we, we read it, but I'll read it again. It says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years, Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. 
You see, the story of those who left Egypt is a tragedy. And it is a tragedy not because they never tasted salvation. It is a tragedy because they tasted salvation and squandered it. This is the generation who was brought out of Egypt, who witnessed the faithful hand of God time and time again, who witnessed God bring the plagues and wonders upon Egypt on their behalf. This is the generation who who witnessed God bring them through the Red Sea, baptizing the nation. And God who provided them with manna from heaven, water from the rock, a remedy from all dangers, toils, and snares. And yet, we see in in the book of Numbers, when the people come come to Kadesh, they come to the threshold of the promised land. Right? They, they stand at the entrance, and God says, go and take. The people shrink back in fear. At the, at, the, at the news of the good report that Caleb and Joshua bring to them, speaking of the goodness of the land, of the land that God was giving to them, at the fertileness of the land, instead of listening to that, They tremble at the news of the other ten who say that the land is uninhabitable because of those who are already within it. And it says in Numbers 14, uh, verse 2, it says, And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or would that we have died in the wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader to go back to Egypt. You see, this is a tragedy. This is a tragedy that they would come so far that they would witness and taste the goodness of God. And yet they could not believe that the God who had only worked for their good would actually continue to work for their good and bring them home. The God who had always, always worked for their good, they could not believe that he would continue to do so and bring them home. And it's a tragedy that the author of Hebrews is directing us to. And he's saying, do not be like them. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. I think, I think it's fair to say that, that many of us do not come from a Jewish background. Right? I think it's fair to say that, that many of us don't, don't come from Judaism necessarily, perhaps not all of us. But, but I'd say many of us. But that does not mean that the temptation to fall away does not bait us on a daily basis. 
And often I think that when we can think about temptations and trials and hardships, right, we, we can expect them to come only in the darkness and the difficulties of life. But I'd say it, it's actually the harshness of this life because life is hard. It's actually the harshness of this life that also lends itself to making the present pleasures of this life all the more desirable. Sin has caused us to not only be weak in the face of adversity, sin has also caused us to be wayward in the face of lesser goods. Because it, it is not the difficulties of this world that necessarily compete with the glory to come. But rather, it's the current glories of this world that compete with the future glories of heaven. In Christ, we are no longer citizens of this world, but we have been made heirs. That is to say that, that heaven is our homeland. That we, are, we are princes and princesses in a far-off country that will come to us when Christ returns. And yet, like Israel looking back at their own, excuse me, looking back at a country that was not their own, we can be tempted to look at the world with wanting eyes to despise, and to despise the better one that has been promised to us. C.S. Lewis, uh, in, in one of his more famous sermons, The Weight of Glory, he says this, and, and this is a, you might already be familiar with this, but he says, he says this, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of rewards promised in the gospel, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition. When infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. God's promise of rest awarded us in Christ is real. And God takes his promise seriously. But do we, right, do you, do you take the promise seriously? Or do you despise it, right? Or do you scorn it? Do you think of Christ as burdensome? Or perhaps you discount it. Perhaps you think that Christ's work cannot possibly be your work. Christ's life and death was at best a mere example for you. But you'll come to God in your own way and in your own time. In Christ, the reward of rest is no longer earned because it can't be, but it is received. In Christ, the reward of rest is no longer something to be accomplished because it can't be, but it's something that is given and I'd say that it is a tragedy to be baptized and to have a sign upon you, to have God's sign upon you, 
and to have been brought into the people of God, that is this church, and to be given the body and blood of Christ at the Lord's table and to taste these wonderful fruits of salvation that have been given for you and to despise it and to disdain it because you have an appetite now for foreign foods and you have an appetite for foreign drink. To despise the Christ that has been given to you and the rest that he has secured for you because your heart now longs for the rest of another. And to discount the sufficient work of Christ because you think your sins are able to outweigh the mercies of God. And in, in our pride and in our false piety, we trample on the cross of Christ. But as the Holy Spirit still says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not be like those in the wilderness who fail to enter into God's rest because of unbelief, but rather be united with those who believe. For those who have believed, enter that rest. Now, now the funny thing is, as we're talking about faith, Right? We're talking about believing and being united with those who believe. The funny thing about faith, or, or really any other virtue uh, for that matter, uh, it's often that when you tell someone to have faith, right? and often when you tell someone that they need to believe, if that's all you say, you haven't really helped them at all. Right? Or per perhaps we, we say this to ourselves, right? I want to have more faith, right? Or I want to have more courage. Or I want to have more joy. And so what do we do? We write it, we write joy on a mirror, right? Or we go to Home Goods and, and we buy a sign that says hope and faith and joy and love, right? Or maybe a mixture. It's okay, I have them in my house. Because you expect these little reminders to help you in your quest. However, the trouble is, is that each of these things all require a tangible object to be directed towards. That object cannot be itself. You can't just believe by believing. You can't just believe by believing. You have to believe in something. Right? You can't just have faith by wanting faith. You have to have faith in something. Or rather, someone. So, there's a story that, uh, that I've heard from a biblical scholar. His name is D.A. Carson. Uh, and I think, I think it's this fantastic story on this point on faith. Uh, so, so, let's imagine that for a second that we're back in ancient Egypt. Uh, and it's during the time that Israel's in slavery. Right? And, and we hear two Jewish men talking. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll call one Abe, we'll call the other Levi. Those two Jewish-sounding names. And they're discussing all the tremendous things that God has been doing in the city. Right? And all the, all the plagues and all the wonders that have been happening. And so, so Abe says to Levi, he says, Hey, Levi, did you hear the, hear the news? Moses said that the angel of the Lord will be, will be passing through the city tonight and taking all the firstborn. 
And Levi turns to Abe and he says, yeah, I heard. And Abe says, well, well aren't you scared? Aren't, aren't you nervous? Levi says, well, why should I be? Didn't you slaughter the lamb? Abe says, well, yeah. Levi says, well, did you take the hyssop branch and, and dip it in the blood and, and paint it on your doorpost? And Abe says, well, yeah, I mean, you bet I did. And Levi says, and tonight, when the angel comes through, are you going to be inside your home with all your family and your loved ones? And he says, well, yeah, I'm not, I'm not crazy. And he says, well, then what are you afraid of? And Abe says, well, I don't know. There's been some really crazy stuff happening. Right? The Nile turned to blood and there's frogs everywhere. Eve Frost. It's kind of scary, don't you think? And Levi looks at him and he says, no. It's like, I trust in the promises of God. Well, that, that night the angel of the Lord passes through, takes all of the firstborn sons. So which of those two lost their son? The answer is neither. Neither one lost their son. Because it's not about the intensity of your faith and how much you believed. It's about the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And so some of you may feel that you have weak faith right now. Some of you may feel very tired and very weary because of your work, because of your labor, because life is hard. Some of you may feel tempted to take the promises of this world and to find rest here and now. And you are finding it very difficult to persevere and to endure. Friends, don't, don't try to pull up your bootstraps. Don't try to grow in your faith simply to grow in your faith. Don't make your faith into a work. Rather, remember the object of your faith. Remember the person in whom you have faith. Remember the one who earned you Sabbath rest on your behalf. Remember your high priest who mediates for you continually in the throne room of God. And the author of Hebrews, he reminds the people in this way. He says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence Draw near to the throne of grace that you may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Today there is grace for you. Today there is mercy for you. Today there is rest for you in Christ. May you rest in his work today. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, Lord, we, th- we thank you that, yeah, that you have called your people. Lord, and even the faith that we do have, you have placed within us. And so that when we do hear warnings, uh, it is the faith within us that trembles and is stirred and shudders uh, because we long for you. Lord, we, we pray that uh, as this world is hard and difficult and, and our labors seem never-ending and they seem to master us daily, Lord, help us to, to, to come to you daily, to, to remember the gospel, to remember the work that has already been done, that when we lay our heads down on our pillows, we can remember, even despite all the failures of the day, that it's already done. We thank you, Jesus, for your work. We thank you for your work on the cross. We thank you that you have earned heaven in our stead. In your son's name, amen.